You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dear Multi-Hyphenate. I, uh, in the past two episodes, haven't either worn pants or shirts, and today is no different because it's quarantine. Um, I am going to add another uh, hyphen to that list, and I'm just going to say I didn't brush my teeth either. So not only am I a multi-hyphenate of the theater, but I am a multi-hyphenate of taking care of myself in a negative way. Um... Just kidding. I, of course, brushed my teeth. I uh, just feel like I haven't because I haven't seen anyone in a month and a week. Um, but uh, I'm recording this episode on a very special day. This is uh, April 15th. It's 100 years. 100 years? Cool, Michael. Cool. It's 108 years since the Titanic sank. Uh, it started at 1140, uh, April 14th, and then uh, hit the Atlantic at 220 in the morning. Um, we all know the story, but you don't know mine. So basically, um, I have a huge connection to the Titanic. Uh, it follows me wherever I go. And ultimately without even doing past life regressions, I have found out that I was on the ship in a past life. Um, because of multiple things. I, uh, when I saw the movie, when I was seven, which about five to seven years old is when you kind of are connected most to your past lives. Saw the movie four times in the theater. And every time I watched it, um, I was, uh, fascinated, but more so, uh, it was like, I was seeing an old friend, but then when it got to the sinking, I kind of was like, why, um, why, uh, why do I feel disconnected from it? Why does it not look familiar? So flash forward my whole life, cosmically, I wound up living in London, studying abroad during the 100-year anniversary of the sinking, um, met family members, all that jazz, and then I moved to New York City right outside of a cemetery which held John Jacob Astor, the richest man on the ship, and then my first uh, playbill cover I photographed was... um, the unsinkable Molly Brown revival starring Beth Malone with transport group. But um, then I found a documentary that James Cameron came out with, with national geographic and I was watching it. And he basically was like, this documentary is because I got the sinking wrong in the movie. And when he came up with the new forensic uh, discovery of the sinking, it was more of what I remembered. 
Um, so today is a really interesting day energetically for me. I went, I, I took my, my COVID walk to the cemetery. And even though it's not open, I got to sit outside and just kind of gave good energy and just, um, did my thing that I do every year by John Jacob Astor's grave site. And now I get to carry on my day with a new friend, someone who I met in 2015 with the kindest, most open arms I've ever received. Um, <laughs> she has not only, not only been such an inspiring artist to me, uh, someone that I've, watched on stage, but just someone, uh, talk about composure, talk about elegance, talk about, um, openness. Uh, I, I don't know how else to positively describe Al Silber, but when I do my eyes beam up and I'm so glad that my friend Al Silber is joining us today. <gasps> hi, babe. Oh, hi, Michael. It's a joy how are you doing? to be here. I'm, I'm, you know, all in all doing very well and uh, feel extremely rich in spirit and health and energy and um, trying to thrive inside a really, really intense global situation. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm just going to say it. Like I usually have, you know, my guests describe themselves, uh, it, how, how they would describe themselves as a multi-hyphenate, but you're a performer, you're a writer, you're an educator, but ultimately you're, I would say, because you had to work really hard, you're a survivor. Mm, thank you. And you, uh, you know, this time I know is not easy and I'm so thankful that you're taking time out right now to, uh, to talk and to speak, but, um, ultimately a multi-hyphenate's journey is so different during the COVID time because we're so used to going out and, and doing and doing and doing and doing, but mm. now we can only do that from home. How has that been going for you? You know, uh, first of all, thank you. Um, You're welcome. I, you know, I just to sort of set up my answer with a little, uh, you know, a little context, uh, and and also just sort of reference the survivor aspect. You know, I, I've I've thought to myself. Um, that I do feel like I'm a person that can really serve others right now in the sense that I, you know, for those of you who don't know my, my personal story that is in many ways contributes to my art forms over and over again. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a really loving household, but my father was diagnosed with cancer when I was nine and passed away ultimately when I was 18. And that experience obviously sh hugely shaped my identity, my upbringing, my, my relationship to, uh, disease and the fragility of life and these big life and death questions, like way before I really had the capacity to fully process them at maturity, if that makes sense. Right. And, and then of course, um, you know, nine is one thing, but the actual losing of my father at 18 was a grief experience that, you know, will continue ever more, but really ultimately took about 10 or 12 years to come to the acceptance phase. And of course, you know, I think a lot of magazines and tweets and articles and everything is talking about how we're experiencing this huge global sociological grief right now. And when I hear that, I, first of all, agree. We are grieving a way of life. We're grieving literally people's loss of life. Um, and 
uh, and grieving life as we know it disappearing within moments like sand from our hands. And I feel that having uh, endured a literal grief, um, and then many years later, right around the time you and I met, in fact, uh, facing a, a health crisis of my own that, um, and really sort of staring down my own mortality and those big questions of my own life being on the line, I just feel extremely armed to be able to weather this and to hold space for other people that might not have the skills or experience that I do with these adversities. Um, and that doesn't make me better or worse or more evolved or more special. It just means that in a moment like this, I feel like I can hold space for myself and for others. And it feels uh, like a gift when I think so many of us are wondering how we can make a difference at all. So I think that is one of the big engines behind what I am doing in terms of my creation, if you will. Um, and, you know, going back to your literal point about multi-hyphenates um, often doing, 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 I so agree. And I, I don't think we're alone. You know, I think we live in a society that prizes action and achievement and su conventional success over the concept of just being with ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just think that multi-hyphenates have a different level of hustle because we're hustling in multiple disciplines, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess what I am trying to embrace is less doing and more being. That I am a human being, not a human doing. And, <laughs> and, uh, and trying to in all seriousness, I say this a little glibly and a little with humor, obviously, but like trying to learn from my cat <laughs> that, um, my cat Tatiana is, I, um, I feel kitty on Instagram. That's right. She is Tatiana Angela Lansbury Romanov, uh, <laughs> at, at I feel kitty. It's pictures of Tati with showbiz captions. And right now they're quite quarantine themed. So like I, it's just like a, a high, a high recommend for those of you who are listening. Um, but Tati in all seriousness, like you think about, you think about cats and dogs or any of our pets that sort of look at us confused. One, like, why are you here all the freaking time? Two, um, like, I don't understand why you're losing your mind. I have been sheltering in place my entire life. Um, so they're, they're pros. And of course, like I look at Tati and I'll go, Tati, do I have another snack? Do I take a fifth nap? And she's like, of course you do. Um, that's what you're I would do. You're a queen, of course. Right. Um, and, and in all seriousness, like, okay. And you sort of like, you laugh, right? But like, what is that? And really what it is, is a completely non-moralistic assessment of existence, right? Of being in touch with something that you want and need that is gentle and comforting and, uh, and, kind and compassionate to yourself and to others and just going ahead with it without judging it as worthy or unworthy or productive or unproductive. That is what Tati would do. And so the, 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 mon the mantra in my household between my boyfriend, Alec and I has been, let's be like Tati, <laughs> like yes. be like Tati in capital letters, but in all seriousness, uh, uh, as, as hilarious as it is. And I mean, obviously Tati's a queen. Um, there is this great wisdom in our animals of uh, what what would we be if we just existed and didn't place any moral judgment on what that meant? Do you know the story of when I realized that in college what happened to me? Um, no, so please share. Um, I didn't understand why I had hands. 
oh I, I went through a, me- a mental breakdown when these questions came to me for the first time wow. that my brain physically did not know how to handle that. And I was like, I live in a snow globe. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know why I have hands. Um, and I couldn't understand music. Wow. It was like the weirdest resetting of my brain because I had taken everything for exactly what it was. You get up, you brush your teeth, you go to school, you come back, you do your homework, you rehearse, you do a show, you get applause, everyone loves you, you go to be- bed, rinse, ra- um, you know, rather rinse, repeat. Oh my God, what am I trying to say? Lather, rinse, repeat. Mm-hmm. And and so it wasn't until college when I had started at, when I had those questions brought to me where I was like existence, what does it mean, routine, all that jazz, where my brain fully was like, I cannot compute, cannot compute. And eventually I was able to grow out of that and, and mm. see see life in a very different way. But ultimately living simply is what we are what we have done for thousands of years. It's not until like basically the industrial revolution where all of a sudden we were like, I'm, I'm going to take a 10 o'clock and then a 10 15 and then an 11 o'clock. And then I'm going to have a a celery stick for lunch. And then I'm going to have my next meeting. It's like all of a sudden we, we as a society have um, really started to take on so much and, uh, and, uh, award the things in our lives that um, ultimately aren't as meaningful as uh, self-love and connection. I mean, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I I just had a conversation earlier today um, with parents that are having interesting conversations about like, okay, so now I'm tasked with homeschooling and my 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 kids are having this really interesting realization that like the tests and the accolades and the rewards that the school system put in place to encourage them to achieve uh are no not only are no longer in place but might be meaningless question mark right and one of the things that i responded with was those are the only forms of lessons we can offer our children and like everyone that the children represent, if, if, whether or not you're a parent right now, you know, like what we can model. And it's possible that in this pandemic, we don't just teach our kids, you know, we don't just get them to pass the algebra test or get them to ace the chemistry final. Um, We are also teaching our children about compassion and being able to identify, express, and share their emotions. We're, te- we're teaching them about empathy. We have the possibility of teaching a generation of young people in this moment, not only math and science and language arts and you know long division, we have yeah. the opportunity to teach them about being better human beings inside a global disaster. And that is just as valuable and just, if not more so, a more valuable lesson that we really can contribute. And we need to also take on that lesson and and pass it on to ourselves and to our peers to be able to give ourselves, sorry, to be able to give ourselves grace and offer it to others. In my episode, no, it's so so true. In my episode with uh, Tanya Pinkins, I talk about 
um, how empathy is, you know, how it was learned for me or how it was, uh, you know, how I, how it started to come into my life. And it was because I was, um, one of the lucky ones raised with, uh, vulnerability and, um, empathy and support Mm. and art. And that way I was able to kind of cultivate, um, my empathy, uh, cause I, I, again, I, you know, when it comes to empathy, I don't, I don't think I'm special. I just, you know, it is a way I communicate. So it's, it's like a muscle, right? It's just, yeah. it's, it's worked out. Um, and I communicate with that because I have a long, a long time with empathy, with my empathic side as being a huge part of who I am. And unfortunately, empathy is not built into our society. No, not anymore. Yeah. But, but what's so unbelievable is that you, um, you exist so beautifully with empathy. And when I first met you, uh, it radiated. And also in everything that you do, it radiates. It's so funny. You, yeah, no, it's, it's true. And it's so funny. It's like, you know, with a, with something that you brought up before, it's like every, the the reason why this podcast exists, the reason why we have these conversations is because everyone actually is a multi-hyphenate. Even mm-hmm. the ones, even the ones that say that they are not, and they're like, I don't know how you do it. You're setting yourself up for failure. Well, one, I have to say, great, I'll fail. I'll learn more about myself in those ways. But two, also like I could list three or four things that you juggle that helps inform the other. Mm you know, and that's not, but that's not for me to bring that, that it's not for me to be the reflection. They have to be their own reflection. I love that. And I, you know, I, for me, my, my big, my, my two, like, I suppose the things that I, this is the other thing, like it, um, just to validate everything you said, like, right. Being a multi-hyphenate doesn't mean that like, it's on your tax return. Like it, it doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to be given permission by the federal government or by a fairy godmother or by your actual mother to legitimately exist in multiple dimensions. Um, right. You know, like I'm a big believer that like, if you make art, you're an artist. If you play yes. an instrument, you're a musician. Like uh, if no one ever has to read your poems, but if you write them, you're a poet, like, uh, like self permission. And it is, is a huge leap toward self-worth Um, and I've had my journeys with that. You know, I remember ages, you know, from, again, for those of you who might not know me, I, I am a like Broadway West End performer, um, actor, singer, and I also write articles in a blog and two published books. And so I suppose you could argue, yes, that like I, I have received very conventional, success accolades that, you know, legitimize the fact that I exist in multiple art forms. Um, but long before that was true, um, when I hadn't published a thing, I remember this was some, this was maybe 10 years ago. I remember having a really profound conversation with my literary agent, um, who incidentally, for those of you, you know, inspired to just put stuff out there, my literary agent found me um, because she came to a play I was in and looked me up and found my blog, which my blog has for its entire existence 
never been advertised, never, I've never made any money for it. It's just been a place, a, a creative crucible for me, a sandbox for me to play. And um, I've always loved reading and writing. It's always been a place of, a source of joy and expression for me. And I never, uh, when I was sort of uh, growing up and going to college, I never ever considered it as an alternative career or as an accompaniment career. It was just something I loved. Um, and when she found me and found my blog and really said, you know, I do think you have a distinctive voice. Let's work together. We started to embark on more professional projects. And of course, the second that it got, I'm putting in sort of quotes here, it got real. <laughs> I, I and my ego, of course, bulked and tried to halt the progress so that I wouldn't have this thing I loved sort of taken from me and I wouldn't spectacularly and very publicly fail. And I, uh, what she said, what, you know, basically she would, she was giving me these notes and giving me these ideas. And I, I said to her, no, 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 listen, listen, I am, I hear you. Like, thank you so much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I'm not a writer. I'm an actor. I don't have a degree in writing. I don't have any training. I am an actor with a drama school degree. And like, I can't do this. I don't know what you're thinking, but I, I, I can't do this. And she just paused and said, well, I really hear you. I, I'm sensing some anxiety and fear. And I just want to, uh, I want to just respond by saying, I'm a, I'm a, a literary agent and I don't represent actors. I represent writers and you are my client. So you must be a writer because I wouldn't represent you if you didn't write things for me to represent. <laughs> and it took somebody laying it out for me that clearly and saying to me that blatantly, you must be a writer because you write things that gave me permission to give permission to myself and go, oh, right. I guess I am a writer. Thank you. And from there, I was able to write with a little bit more confidence and muscle and also be able to give myself permission to, to kind of go back to something you said, to fail and not view failure as a pejorative, but view it as a complete learning experience. And, um, you know, what I think is really crucial about this as, a, as an arc, right, is that, one, we always have to begin engaging with our hyphenates from a really pure place. We have to yes. really love something, right? We have to just want to write, we have to want to paint, we have to want to learn the trumpet, whatever it is. Um, we have to want to start that small business or make a perfect German chocolate cake, like whatever it may be, whatever is a creative act for you. Um, you have to feel that you're in the presence of play, right? Like that sense of play that you remember from being a kid where time disappears and you sort of like come to and wake up four hours later and you've been like playing with your Barbies and then suddenly you're online again. Like that is the sensation that exists in the wild of, you know, when lions and big cats um, play, they are play fighting. They are sharpening their skills for real life and they do it all the time. And we as human beings basically have sort of given ourselves this really false sentencing that we're allowed to play as children. And the second that we grow up somewhere between 18 and 25, we're not allowed to have that experience anymore ever again, because we have serious adult things to do, like pay the bills. And that just isn't really how 
our animal minds and bodies are wired. We need play in order to problem solve, in order to get closer to our life purpose, in order to connect with others, in order to process the world around us, and in order to be able to meaningfully contribute to the world around us. Like We need to engage with that. And a lot of times those things can be things that you go forth and make jobs out of, but not necessarily. And the fact that you do or don't make money from something does not more or less legitimate that experience make. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whatever you said, I completely agree with. And it's like, (laughs) you know, whatever you're saying is like, it's going to be mandatory homework listening for all of my workshop students whenever I, I, I teach workshops because because the prince, first of all, I'm stealing, consider this stolen, and but I will cite an, um, an MLA format, I promise. But you saying engage with your hyphens from an extremely pure place, that literally is how I start uh, in my workshops, my Dear Multi-Hyphenate workshop, one of the things that you leave with is proficiency and skill affirmations. And in order to get to that sentence, hello, my name is Michael Kushner, and I am great at uh, I'm great at photography by helping you realize your truest self in a photo, you know, by helping you get to a photo, to it, to a photo, to a sentence that clearly, uh, shares your essence, clearly shares that momentum you have as an artist clearly shares your heartbeat. You have to be able to engage with your hyphens from an extremely pure place. And I'm obsessed yeah. with what you just said. Well, I just think that ultimately, um, The other thing that I would, you know, so I think the next question beyond that, right, becomes like, well, how do you know if it's a pure place? Like, how would you define that? Where would you start even making those discoveries? And um, my response to that question would be, you have to, one has to, at, at a certain point in their development, one has to take a moment, open their, like, crack open their journal, blow off the cobwebs, and get in touch with what their core values are. And core values are ostensibly like, what are the things that underneath all the hustle and bustle of life, underneath all the likes and follows and popularity and fear and ego, um, what are the things that really, really make you who you are and the things that you really stand for in this life. And those are things like integrity, family values, honesty. Um, they can they can be 
you know, there's, there's, these, this is a very Googleable list of values, but it's really important for you to identify really your top three and then see what the sort of like verb actions are inside that, right? Like mm-hmm. if your core values have to do with family, they might not necessarily do like have to do with your nuclear extended family specifically. It could be about family matters to me and I'm making this up like family matters to me because I didn't have a family experience growing up that was satisfying for me. So creating safe, honest, emotionally expressive, loving families wherever I go, whether it be a cast, whether it be an office community, whether it be at a place of religious services or whatever it may be, family creation is one of my values. And that, you know, that doesn't have to do with like popping out a bunch of kids. It has to do with something that's a little bit more global for me. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's amazing because it, it, it has that, it has to come with that, that kids playing in a sandbox sort of a feel that playing that playing dress up, trying on those different hats, being like, this feels right. This, you know, yes, 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 exactly right. That childlike wonder. And it's so funny. It's like, really, we do all these equations. We do these, um, these, you know, uh, sentences, the soul searching, you know, you're talking about a Google, a Googleable list of words, but ultimately it just boils boils down to the things that we know. I have a sentence for every single thing that I do that ultimately shows off the why of what I do. Oh, and huge. I love that. Fr- I love that phrase. I use it myself. Like, what is the why? What is what the is why the, here? Yeah. What is the why? And for me, Michael Kushner as a whole, I produce non-quotidian artistry that benefits the world around me. Non-quotidian, thank you, non-quotidian meaning different or off the beaten path because I love being the odd one out. I love being the odd thinker. I love being the one that knows himself, the one that's not... Uh, that's a nonconformist. I love seeing how I could be the weird puzzle piece, the the piece that no one else can go to, non-quotidian artistry that benefits the world around me. And that's what Michael Kushner does. I love that. And, you know, to me, I hear that and I hear... Um you know, values that have to do with like embracing non-convention and also service. Like those are the two things that emerge in that sentence for me. Like it's going like, uh, authenticity, uh, and, and giving back. Like that's what that sentence says to me. And when it comes to me, like it, you can, you can do, you can look me up on social media and my values are right there for the taking. Like it, it, on all my accounts, it says onwards with courage and integrity. And for me, everything that I, it, and it took me some time to, to get in, in touch with those. And my, my third central, my third central value has to do with service. Uh-huh. And when I, when I think about courage and what that means, courage to me is not about an absence of fear. It's not about fearlessness. I think a lot of people confuse that. Courage is about being in touch with our fear and our anxiety from the small to the, to the very epic and mortal and acting anyway inside that fear, that's courage. That's heroism. And I, I want to be able to identify those fears and, and act anyway. And integrity of course is about saying what you mean about being impeccable with my word, about making sure that I'm acting always inside my values and I don't always 
win. I don't, I'm not always brave and I'm not always acting in my purest integrity, but I'm always endeavoring to, and that's what having integrity means. And then my last one is service, which is like, sometimes I'm serving others and sometimes I'm serving fictional others. Sometimes I'm, for example, like in, in, especially in shows like Fiddler on the Roof and Indecent, where I feel really connected to my, my Judaism and my cultural identity inside that, I, I often think I'm, I'm not just serving the fact that I love to perform or serving my, seat, my scene partners or serving the audience who's here today. On a really global and spiritual level, I am serving the people that these characters represent that can no longer speak for themselves. And by filling their stories with my whole heart and soul and self and everything I have available to me, I'm serving real life breathing people that are no longer here and whose stories thought they might never be told. And it goes from the very literal to the very, very metaphoric. It's amazing. I, I talk about uh, uh, consistency and stability in art and you have found this consistency and stability, this common denominator in the roles and projects that come to you. I mean, you're talking about courage and the roles that you play such as Maria and, um, you know, in Masterclass and Eliza and, uh, and Seidel, all of these roles have a common denominator of courage, even in the, even in the projects that you have, um, adapted and, and written like, like Trojan women or, uh, what is it? It was it Antigone, Antigone, sorry, Antigone, not Euripides, Antigone, all the common denominator of these women of these projects is courage. That's such a, I, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, it's really interesting. I was thinking about Seidel the other day, beloved Seidel. Um, uh, I've been watching, um, I watched in, in a, I had to take breaks, but I watched Unorthodox on Netflix and I, th- just for anyone listening, like I think Unorthodox is some of the best television I've seen in over a decade. It is stunningly made and acted and conceived, you know, by so many women. Um, and is the story of an ultra Orthodox woman, woman's escape from her community in Williamsburg and so much more beyond that plot line. But one of the things I was thinking about as I was sort of emerging from one of the first episodes was, was Seidel and how, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we sort of look at, uh, at Huddle and Hava in the, in the Fiddler arc is increasing in the intensity of the, the, the ways that they leave the tradition and the faith. Um, and actually what I think is so amazing about Seidel is that she is the very first person to, to go in the face of the norms at all. And I remember in rehearsal, back in 2015 when I was, when we were rehearsing the scene where Tevya is telling Seidel, you know, you're going to marry laser wolf and it's going to be wonderful and we're going to be wealthy and everyone's going to be taken care of. You're so lucky. And her first line in response is Papa, I don't want to marry him. And I remember Bartlett Shear saying to me, you know, you're, you're doing a great job and everything, but like, I just want to put in your ear that you are, you're playing the scene from a 21st and 20th century lens, as if women have a right to want anything. 
And so I think I, I just want you to scrub that off and take that away. And he's, he gave me this incredibly illuminating piece of direction, which was this, that Seidel is so courageous and so groundbreaking in her very specific vision and spirit. Because Papa, I don't want to marry him is not only a sentence that's never been said before, it is a thought that has never been thought before. And it blew my mind and, of course, changed everything about what I was creating. And I, I, it, it was really interesting because just the other day I said, I think she might have been the most courageous of them all in her quiet wow. way. Yeah. That just gave me the chills. Oh, I'm glad. I, I love my Seidel cans oil so much. And Seidel has really, you know, uh, not you didn't just meet her on stage, but you met her in another proficiency of yours, which was writing. Of course. I mean, that was actually one of the uh, one of the great joys was in in my novel after Anatevka, which is predominantly about what happens to Hoddle and Perchik after Huddle and Perchik go to Siberia um, from Fiddler on the Roof. Um, you know, it's a it's a take on, it's a very historical fiction, very literary take on what happens to these characters that we all know and love. But I would say with confidence that the sort of next supporting character in my book is Seidel and her relationship to Huddle is um, predominantly expressed through memory and flashback and then in the contemporary sense through an epistolary medium of letter writing. And what's really fascinating in hindsight is I, I finished a manuscript of after Anatevka before I was ever cast in the Broadway revival. Wow. I had played Huddle in London from 2006 to 2008. So I played Huddle, the second oldest daughter in the West End revival years ago and was so sort of enraptured with Huddle's story that I was motivated to kind of, find out what happened to her, quote unquote. Um, and Seidel played a really huge role in it then. And I had created, if you will, like created a life for Seidel outside the realms of what we know of her from the musical and from the original Shalom Aleichem stories. Right. Um, and what was so fascinating was when I, I finished it about two years before I was even cast. And um, another really interesting Bart Shear story was in my audition, I remember I didn't do a lot of reading from the play or singing. I, I just remember he asked, he had me come in and asked me this very unusual question that I was ideally suited to answer, which he said, so Seidel, tell me about her. And I had written a novel about this woman, right? You know, he That's didn't know that. I, you know, crazy. it was just, it was crazy. And I just, you know, I, I poured my heart out. And by the time I got into rehearsal, I realized that this, this woman was galloping out of my heart. And, uh, and what was interesting was really being able to take it from the stage to the page and then from the page back to the stage. And then of course, playing Huddle, uh, playing Seidel on Broadway for a year and change. Um, I was then able to sort of go back to the original manuscript with so much illumination about both characters and well, all the characters, the entire thing and, and be able to sort of augment it based on what I learned, you know, seven, eight years later. And I think ultimately the the letters between Hoddle and Seidel and after Natevka really serve as an interesting, especially if you know me well, really serve as a very interesting dialogue between my older and younger self um, 
I'm not just writing between two sisters. I'm writing between two Al's, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's, it's very powerful. So it's, it's a joy. And I, I ultimately think, you know, Seidel gets the sort of penultimate word of the book and that's not a coincidence. I'm obsessed with that. I mean, and, and the fun, the amazing thing about it is, you know, you, you have such a talent of making your self universal. So many people can't make, so many people can't make themselves universal so many people can't take their different aspects of their psyche i mean they can but i just don't think it, it, it it's again it's a muscle of communication that's worked out but you you know you are able to tell these stories of two owls through this medium that makes it so universal and and it's and it's amazing and everything you do is so courageous i mean you have affected me in so many different ways. What was one of our recent conversations that happened in the studio? I mean, it was you, uh, you made me raise my rates. <laughs> I did. I did. And then you did it. You and I did it. it. And, and I, I, we were talking about how, you know, money is a very complicated subject for a lot of people. And it's, it, it, it's it's an energy and a a relationship that we have to something that is like, for the most part literally like a a digital reality that exists on our phone. You know, it's like this very bizarre thing. Um, but really, money is an exchange of energy, and it it really reflects a lot about our self worth and what we think of what we put out into the world. And um, yeah, I was I was maybe suggesting to you that you um, that you have value beyond what you assume, and um, it's, it's really interesting. Know. It's yeah, I mean, social media is the new fur coat, right? We kind of totally we, we flaunt it. We post our best angles and our best days, and and all that jazz, and 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 it's uh, you. But really, what is uh the most important thing is the is the work and the moments in between and when you um i'm glad that one we have a friendship where you're able to say that but that i also create a space where you can be open and candid with me in that way Mm. and um so i felt i felt that it really came out of a place of love and care and you know, I really listened to what you had to say and it was true because I was, what was happening was I was working harder, not smarter. Yeah. And, no. and also doing that really interesting thing that I, I think is a really understandable thing about like, gosh, if I raise my rates, will, what will people think? Will I lose customers? Will I? And I think going back to, um, you know, going back to what I observed in your sentence about authenticity and service, which is, you know, non-quotidian to make the world a better place. Like, um, energetically, if you, if one raises their rates there, there will be people that value you at that, at that level. And it'll also give you the opportunity and the space and the financial wiggle room to be able to offer packages at the lower end of your market that might not necessarily have been possible if you were just counting every dollar you could, 
it puts you in a place of abundance rather than a place of lack. And it all starts though, it all starts with taking the leap of self-worth. And that's really the energy work. That's the energy work. And I, I think that that's a really big subject for multi-hyphenates is like, do I have a right to feel worthy about this? And that is a conversation you have to have with a dear diary moment you have to have with yourself long before you decide what to charge. <laughs> you know, it's a very, very personal rumbling. It's really interesting because, you know, some people think that, again, I think that we're all multi-hyphenates, but I have been met with so many different attitudes and opinions about multi-hyphenating or quote unquote, you do too much stuff. But ultimately, I do so much stuff because I found mediums where I'm able to communicate different aspects of myself that I can't do in other mediums, you mm -hmm. know? So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Hugely fortunately, agree with that, by the way, I, I think you. that's a massive, massive reality. It's like this, you know, that for, I mean, just to like give a very specific example, like, um, being able to describe, uh, a philosophical concept idea or story linguistically and really get into the psychology at length is something that literature offers me and being able to enact emotionally and sometimes silently and without language live another lifetime is what theater and acting offers me. And, um, and the people that consume those art forms sometimes require different things. I know that I've benefited from the consumption of different art forms in countless innameable ways. Um, and the ability to offer them in multiple ways feels like a blessing, not a curse. Eloquently said. I, you know, take, for instance, my favorite story is Les Mis. Um, the novel opens up a whole new world to me that the, than the musical would because the right. musical is also informed by an early 80s French West End pop rock sound, which is a, one way of communicating the story than what Hugo did. You know what I'm saying? Totally. totally. So I, I, get, I mean, a, a great example. A great example. Yeah. I, I get to explore, you know, with, with Frankie Raffel's Edith Piaf Street singing Eponine. I get to explore that aspect of her psyche, but also I get to explore the toothless, hairless, knock-kneed gutter rat that is Eponine in the novel. Totally. Yeah. Both both super important and both uh, using different ways of communication. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. um, I was so moved by Masterclass on... Uh, Broadway. Oh, thank you. I saw I saw it on Broadway, and I also saw it in the West End. Um, and you know what? I learned so, and this is so heartbreaking because of you know Terrence McNally. Yeah. Um, it's so heartbreaking, but Beloved that. Yeah. I'm sorry. What did you say? Beloved Terrence. Yes. Um, I you know that that play that he wrote every word is filled with intention and meat and mm -hmm. potatoes yeah. and a, that was towards the end of my stage dooring career mm -hmm. and so I, when i stage doored the show i um you know i met uh 
who did I meet? I, Time Daily. Uh-huh. Time Daily. And this was um, when I was feeling that feeling that I was explaining to you. It was the, um, it was the, you know, uh, I don't know life in this new way, this new way of thinking, this new relationship I have it, it you know, uh, of other than waking up, brushing my teeth, eating, going to, you know, rehearsal, going to bed. And when I was talking with Tyne Daly in that very vulnerable state, she stopped me and she was like, I have a quote for you. All life is trying to be art and all art is trying to be music. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> so, and, so tired. Yes. <laughs> and what did you I, take from that? What did I say to that? What did you take from that? What did I take from that? I, I took that. I took a few things. One was that I was exactly in the right place that we as artists, that we as communicators are actually the ones that are best reflecting mm life and the questions that we have yeah it's not about it's not so much answering them you know while i'm in the shower or when i'm driving to pick up groceries or whatever but ultimately it's about answering them in the rehearsal room or sitting at my journal or the moment before i enter stage you know what i mean it's it's those moments the moment the heightened moments when we're when we're when we're putting life in under a microscope, a slice of life and really picking it apart, that's when being an artist is really important. I completely agree. And I think that just bringing it back to a like tying a bow on this talk about and how the, the circumstances under which we're even having it, you know, right now, I think a lot of us are struggling not just artists, but a lot of us, I think, universally that are considered non-essential workers are struggling to feel what our purpose is here on Earth if it's not just about keeping human beings alive. Um, And I think that I can't speak to everyone, but I can speak to artists that dear artists who are listening right now, our work is essential and it will be essential. It, it's essential to for us to reflect right now and create right now, whether we want to keep it to ourselves or whether we want to share it publicly. Like I'm, I'm a big proponent of whatever is making you feel good right now, do it. <laughs> if you don't want to consume, you are allowed to decline to participate in the consumption of art. It's whatever makes us feel good. But ultimately, my point is this. Our work is essential because the world will be looking to us to interpret this experience and its meaning on a global and personal level going forth. And not only in the immediate future, but in the future generations that look back at this event, they'll look to the artists of this moment and that's who we are. And our job will be to help interpret this experience and serve by healing the world and that's a really, really big responsibility. That's about ascending mere survival and making sure that on the other side of our surviving this plague, we have a reason to live. And you prove my statement even more that your common denominator is indeed courage. 
Oh, Michael, thank you. I, I, love, I, feel, I, love, I love you. I feel so seen by you. And it's why it's why you so much more than um, take uh, take my photo. You you're photographing so much more than my physical being. And and that's evident in all the art you make, including this conversation. Thanks, my love. You are the best. And I uh, I learn from you every single time I speak with you. And I can't wait for more life-changing conversations. You're just absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Michael. And all the health and safety and, and expansion to you until I can you hug too. you again. I know. Same to you. Where can we find you on social media? Oh, I'm at Al Silbs, A-L-S-I-L-B-S, on all social media. And uh, please reach out. I'd love to keep the conversation going, listeners. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Al. You're the best. You're the best. Thanks, Michael. See you soon. Bye. This podcast is produced by the Broadway Podcast Network. Make sure to find me online via Instagram at the Michael Kushner or at the Dressing Room Project, or on Twitter at mkushnerphoto, and visit me online via bpn.fm forward slash dearmultihyphenate. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.